Amen. Oh, thank you, Luke. Thank you, worship team. As we were worshiping the Lord through song, oh, just to catch a glimpse of his glory, the ancient of days, to see him seated on the throne. When we understand who he is, as we're singing these truths from scripture about our God, that will recalibrate and change our minds and our hearts and our lives forever. So thank you, Luke, for leading us this morning. And you can see on your chairs, as you came in, you can see the communion elements. So it's the first Sunday of the month. We will be partaking of communion together this morning, which, again, is just a perfect opportunity. As we finish up Revelation 4 this morning, we will see the impossibility of having a relationship with God if not for him doing the work to get to us. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate when we take communion together. We're celebrating that he did the work to get to us and to bring us to himself. So those elements, you can set those aside for now. We will be partaking of those at the end of our time together this morning. And just a reminder, those elements are for believers. They, they wouldn't make any sense for a non-believer to partake of those elements. Because it's a celebration of the gospel. It's a celebration that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be saved and reconciled to the Father. So this morning, even as we spend time in Revelation 4, I want to just ask you to begin examining your own heart. Examining your own heart and, and asking the Lord, search me. Know if there's any wicked way in me, if there's any unrepentant sin that I need to turn today so I can celebrate rightly the beauty of communion. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. As you're turning there, uh, many of you will remember in 1996, it was the worst disaster uh, as far as the uh, amount of life taken on Mount Everest uh, up until that time. That number has recently changed. But back then in 1996, is 15 climbers who died in a, a terrifying um, storm that rushed in in 1996 on the top of Mount Everest, killing 15 climbers and those that were able to survive the disaster spoke of the insane intensity with which that storm rushed in and kept so many climbers from being able to climb down from the peak of this mountain. One such climber, his name is Beck Weathers, he described, he's a survivor, describing what he saw and what he heard on that mountain as this massive storm blew in over the mountain he had frostbite so badly that he had to have his hands and his feet and his nose amputated. And he said he had never heard a sound like the thunder from that storm. It was so dark and so black that he couldn't see anything. It was so windy that he couldn't hear anything. And except for the, the sound of thunder that he felt more than he heard. I think about that event often. I think about climbing Mount Everest. I think about being stuck in that storm. I think about 
the sound of the wind of that storm. I think about the darkness and not being able to see anything. And I think about the thunder that you feel more than you hear and how truly awful it would be to use the real definition of awful, right? Filled with awe, truly awe-filled. But my friends, that is just creation. That's just nature making a truly awesome, awe-filled event happen. This morning, we're going to see yet again in Revelation chapter 4, at the throne room of God, we are going to see God's awesomeness on display. And if you could feel the thunder on that mountain in 1996, if you could, if you could feel it rumbling in your own chest, what must it feel like to be in the throne room when the thundering of God's glory goes forth? What must it feel like when these flashes of lightning go forth from the throne? My prayer this morning is that we would be given eyes to see, to savor, and to understand what John would have been feeling and seeing and understanding as he was in the throne room of God. Let's read this together. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius or a carnelian in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures were giving glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Father, we come once again into your presence 
we have the privilege of experiencing in a smaller way, in a, in a sense, and tasting this glorious experience that John had as we are welcomed into your throne room now. And so, Father, I pray that we would see what John's seen. We would experience what he's experiencing, not being able to physically be ushered into heaven, but we would understand through the gift of the Holy Spirit's illuminating work in our hearts and our minds what this meant to John and what it means to us. God, that we would not remain unaffected as we stare at your holiness, as we stare at your glory, as we stare at your majesty. God, as we pray every Sunday, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. And we say with, with Samuel, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Teach us this morning. And grow in us not just more knowledge about who you are, but greater affection and love for you that would conquer all other affections, that would destroy all other desires. Any competing desire of idolatry would be destroyed as you grow in us a love for Christ and him alone. We ask things that are impossible if it's not for the work of the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. We pray now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You remember chapter 4 and 5 make up one vision divided perfectly into two parts. Chapter 4 is the context setting us up for our breath just being taken away. And then chapter 5 is the unfolding of the story itself. In chapter 4, we began last week by looking at four things that grab John's attention. There are four things that instantly grab John's attention. We only looked at one last week, and Lord willing, we will look at three this morning. The first that we looked at last week is God's glory and grace. God's glory and grace. Just absolutely capturing John's attention. We saw the diamond, the way that God's glory looks like a diamond, and that word like is so important. It, it isn't that God is a diamond, and we don't know exactly what it means. It could be a reference to his holiness, his purity, but it's just the ineffable or indescribable, as we sang this morning, the glory of God that just cannot be described. The best way that we're grasping at words to describe it would be like a diamond or like a carnelian or a sardius that when you look at it, it's just this uh, amazing fire red and this rainbow around the throne that looks like an emerald. We looked at the glory of God with John last week, and now we're going to look at the remaining three things that grab John's attention. So number one, glory and grace. Number two, authority and atonement. Authority and and atonement. This is the second thing that grabs John's attention. Authority and atonement, starting in verse 4. Around the throne. Remember, everything is centered around the throne. It's around the throne, from the throne, behind the throne, in front of the throne. The throne, the, this picture of authority is what matters most in this vision. It's all about God's authority. And yet, around the throne, there are 24 other thrones, verse 4 tells us. And upon those thrones, there are 24 elders sitting down and ruling with God. So 24 other thrones. Remember, we talked about a throne as a symbol of authority. So these 24 elders are given authority by God. 
But what you need to make note of is the fact that God has all of that authority to begin with. And he delegates it to these 24 elders. And because he has all authority, they are given some aspect of that authority. But they don't have anything apart from God giving it to them. By way of illustration, if I were to say, I I really trust our brother Sergio, which I do. And we were all to say, hey, we think he's a wise leader. He's a gifted, godly man, which he is. And we said, you know what? I think he would be a really good Supreme Court justice, right? I think he would. He'd judge fairly, judge impartially. So if we gave him a big robe and said, let's take you to Washington and just jump in on the Supreme Court, right? How far do you think he's going to get before he gets tased, right? Just because he's been given a robe does not mean he has been given any authority because you and I don't have any authority to grant to him to sit on the Supreme Court. But God has all authority. So if he says, I'm going to put 24 thrones around me in the throne room of heaven and give these people authority, then we know that they are God's entourage, as it were, people appointed to places of delegated power in heaven. And who is sitting on the throne? These 24 thrones around this one throne that God is seated on, they are occupied by 24 elders. And you can see 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So this helps us with a description of what they look like, which will help us identify who they are. Now, right off the bat, as we've talked before about Revelation, there are a lot of images in Revelation. There are a lot of ideas in Revelation. There are a lot of similes in Revelation and analogies in Revelation. And there are so many different views as to who these people are and what the things are that we're seeing in Revelation. Even this morning, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, there are so many different options that people have come up with. In fact, as I was reading and just studying this passage, I found 13 different views as to who the 24 elders are. So I'll try to give you my rationale for who I believe they are, but we're not going to make any dogmatic statements as we walk through the text. Really, you can sum up these 13 different views into two categories. It's either some angelic being or some human being. I believe these are humans. I believe they are humans for a number of reasons. Number one, angels aren't described in the Bible as ruling on thrones. They're never given that description. They are servants and messengers. Number two, when speaking of a person using this word elder in the Bible, it either speaks of the fact that they are older in age or it speaks only of a human in some form of authoritative capacity. So it's not ever, this word is never used of an angel anywhere in the Bible. In Matthew 19, the 12 apostles are told by Christ that they will reign with Christ on thrones and judge with him. And this word crown, the golden crowns that are on their heads, there are two Greek words for crown. One is a crown given to you by right just because uh, you are ascending to the throne uh, and in your family lineage you are given that, that crown by right. But one is a throne that's given to you because you competed in a game and you won it. That's the word here for crown. You competed and you won. You, you earned this crown in some way, shape, or form by overcoming an obstacle. And that would fit in perfectly with what we studied in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, correct? To the overcomer, to the overcomer. And one of them is, I will give the crown of righteousness. To the overcomer, I'm going to give you a crown. So, I don't think that it's angels. I think it's humans. These humans are given white garments. 
White garments were promised in chapter 2 and 3 to those who would overcome, brought out of this world, washed, cleansed, and given this perfect picture of atonement. You have dirty rags of sinfulness. I take those and I will give you my perfection, my perfect clothes of righteousness. That's why I say authority and atonement. John sees the authority of these 24 elders, but he also sees the atonement that made them being in heaven possible. I don't think that they're angels. Again, I could be wrong, but I don't think that they are. But who are they if they're human? Twelve is an important number in the Bible. And so we have two times the twelve. We have 24 elders. Some people would say it's a reference to the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. It could be. You have some issues with that. I think more than a specific representation of 12 people in the Old and 12 people in the New, I think it's a reference to all of the redeemed, all of those who have had their garments washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ being represented in heaven. This is a representation of all believers from all ages ruling and reigning with Christ. But what matters more than who they are is what they do. That's what matters more than who they are. And what they are doing is incessantly worshiping Jesus. They just worship him. They're going to bow down to him. They're going to cry out to him. They're not giving God advice. They're ruling and reigning with him, but not in the capacity of giving him advice or being his advisors. We're going to see these 24 elders 11 different times in the book of Revelation, and they're always doing the same thing. They're always calling out the praises of God and how amazing he is. So John sees glory and grace. He sees atonement and authority in these 24 elders. And then he sees number three. He's captured and captivated by service and strength. He sees service and strength. Starting in verse five, out from the throne come these flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Louder than anything I'm sure John had ever experienced. More brilliant than anything I'm sure John had ever experienced. Right before COVID, I went to the eye doctor because my eyes were getting bad. I'm starting to see things very blurry and I had to, in order to read a book, I had to hold it out here. Praise the Lord, he gave me long arms. And so I went to the eye doctor and they started doing tests on me. And she was a very sweet lady and she said, uh, okay, I'm going to shine a, a bright light in your eyes. It's going to be pretty bright and just keep them open. So sure enough, just blinding me with this very bright light. And it happened for, you know, 10, 20 seconds. And then she said, okay, good job. Now I'm going to shine an even brighter light in your eyes. <laughs> and I, I thought, wait, the, the first one wasn't bright enough. And sure enough, poof, this one was even worse. And then she said, now I'm going to shine a really bright light in your eyes. Wait, why didn't we start with the really bright light? Why do you have these layers of bright lights and these levels of bright lights? Just give me the first one and get it over with. I don't know why they do that. But all I know is by the time it was done, I, just, I saw a ring in my eyes over everything for probably about four hours after that. Just my eyes were stunned. What do you think John's eyes are feeling like in this moment? He's seen the glory of God, the ineffable glory of God. He says it looks like a diamond, so there's pure brilliance coming from God's throne. And now there's flashes of lightning around God's throne. I, I, if I'm John, this is such a terrifying experience. I don't even know how to use words to describe it. I think John's doing a pretty good job here. 
He says there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, we studied this expression, the perfection of God's Holy Spirit. This is comprehensive sufficiency described in the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit. And so he sees the glory of God, the awesome nature of who God is, and he sees the Holy Spirit. And then verse 6, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. What is this sea of glass? Again, just pay attention to that word like. It isn't a sea, because the Bible's going to end up saying in the end of Revelation that there is no sea. So it isn't a sea, but it's like a sea of glass. What is this? Well, this would be like any throne room. Back in that day, if you have a king who's seated on a throne, you don't just open the door to his throne room and you're immediately in his presence. There's an, an enormous expanse between you and the king. He'd be far away. And whatever expanse was between you and the king was designed, whether it's beautiful gold or, or emerald or pearls or some form of amazing ornate design, it was, it was made for you to just be in awe of the fact that you're standing in the presence of the king. And you have to wait for him to allow you access to his throne. That's what's happening here. There is this sea of glass surrounding the throne. There's an expanse between God seated on the throne and between John being able to get to the throne. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, as Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu are going into the presence of God, it says that under God's feet there is something like pavement that has these beautiful, brilliant colors that is an expanse between God and Moses and Aaron. In Ezekiel chapter 1, which is a, a vision that is almost identical to the vision here in Revelation 4 and 5, Ezekiel sees the throne room and says there is this pavement, there is this expanse between him and God. Brothers and sisters, God's majesty is so great that you and I cannot get to God on our own. We can't get to him. This is God's absolute transcendence. The gap between us and God is it's like an impassable sea. There's no way to get past this sea to get to God. And this is man's greatest problem because God is so holy, you and I cannot enter into his throne room and have access to him as king. How do we get to him? Only God himself can do that. And that's the whole point of chapter 5, which Lord willing we will get to next week. But we can't get there too soon. We don't want to inst instantly go to, well, the way has been made through the cross. We have access, boom, done. Because you and I need to feel the fact that John, a friend of Jesus and an apostle and a believer, still does not, he's not able to have access to the throne. And the extent to which we understand God's transcendence is the extent to which we will glory in his redemption. If you and I do not understand his, his transcendence, then we will not glory in his redemption. So there's a, a sea of glass like crystal. And then we meet some very strange creatures. In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Four living creatures. The first is like a lion. The second is like a calf or an ox. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. I like how John gives us that definition, a flying eagle, you know, as opposed to the walking eagles that you see every day. 
And the four living creatures, one of them, or each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Who are these creatures? Well, let's start with what we know. We know that they are some form of the highest order of angelic beings. Now, to specify what kind of angelic being they are, it's actually a very challenging thing to do. If you go to Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1, which we don't have time to do, but Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, Ezekiel sees four creatures with the exact same faces looking the exact same as these creatures, and he calls them cherubs, or to use the Hebrew, cherubim, right? Im is the S in Hebrew. So cherubim, these are a bunch of cherubs, four cherubs around God's throne. So if all we have is Ezekiel and Revelation, we'd say, well, these are the four cherubs that Ezekiel is describing. But Ezekiel says that they only have four wings. And here, John says they have six wings. So if we take the six wings, we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and the seraphim, uh, seraphs, but the seraphim are also the highest of angelic beings in Isaiah chapter 6. They're described as having these six wings. We don't get a description of what their faces look like, but we do get a description of their song, and their song is identical to the song here in Revelation chapter 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we kind of have a problem if we only say these are cherubim. We kind of have a problem if we only say these are seraphim. It's kind of like a Venn diagram. And that's why there are actually people that say this is a different class of angels. There's seraphim. They have six wings. They're singing the same song, but we don't have the description of their faces. There's cherubim. They have the, the four faces, but they only have four wings, not six wings. So some people try to figure out what's up with the number of wings being different. And some people just say there's cherubim, there's seraphim, and there's this different category of angelic being. And I'll just tell you, I have no idea. I don't know. But I do know whether they are cherubim or whether they are seraphim or whether they are a completely different class of angelic being, we do know that they are around the throne as the highest order of angelic beings, the secret service, if you will, of God's entourage. And there are things that we can deduce from what they do and the descriptions of who they are. First, you can see their descriptions of having eyes in verse 6, in front and behind. This is just a description of having vast knowledge, vast seeing ability, vast intelligence. They have eyes everywhere. They can see. They're not omniscient and all-knowing, but they can see a lot better than you and I can see. And then there's a description of their, their faces. Again, we have the word like, so whether they actually have these literal faces or whether it's uh, something in how they operate, we don't know, but... I do think we can kind of figure out what John is describing. The first, in verse 7, the first creature is like a lion. Uh, the lion is the king of beasts, royalty, nobility, valor, and strength. So this angel probably represents strength to accomplish whatever God wants it to accomplish. The second has a, a calf-like feature, an ox-like feature, which the ox is the strongest of animals that's just designed by God to serve. So we've got a lion who's this amazing, noble animal, the king of beasts, and then we have this ox who's just designed to serve. And we have a person, face like a man, rational thinking, intellect, and wisdom, and intelligence. And then we have this eagle, which would be known for being swift, very quick speed, and a 
accomplishing whatever the task is. So once again, we go back to what is John captivated by? He's captivated by the strength and the service of these four living creatures. They have the highest of all of these specific qualities. They are God's secret service angels commanding his whole entourage. And they have six wings. They have six wings, verse 8 tells us. Six wings. In Isaiah chapter 6, if this is a reference to the seraphim, we are told what those six wings do. You remember? With two, they are covering their face. They can't behold the glory of God or else they will be blinded and die. With two, they are covering their feet because they are on holy ground. They wouldn't dare just prance around and waltz around in the presence of God. They are on holy ground. And then with two, they are flying. I don't want to make too much of this, but I do think that this is very interesting. They have four wings designed purely to identify their worship of God, right? Covering their feet, he's holy, I can't be in his presence. Covering their face, I can't even look upon his glory. And then with two, they're flying. They're accomplishing whatever mission God has designed for them to accomplish. Whatever God tells them to do, they use those two wings to go do it. Isn't it interesting that two-thirds then of their effort with their wings is spent on worshiping God and only one-third is spent on serving Him? I think this is very important for us. You remember the whole Mary Martha thing, right? Some of us love to serve, and we serve, and we serve, and we serve. It's almost as if we had six different wings. We would be using five of them somehow to serve, and with one, we would be doing uh, whatever God's asking us to do in worshiping His holiness. But I think this is informative for us. The angels that are in heaven worship Him far beyond serving Him. Because only when you worship God for who He is will you serve Him well in what He's asking you to do. So, these creatures represent strength and service. And, one last thing in verse 8, they are full of eyes around and within. Now, people who translate the Bible just don't know what to do with this. Full of eyes around and within. That's what my Bible says, around and within. In the Greek, the best way to explain it is they have eyes outward and eyes inward. They have eyes outward and eyes inward. Now, what we do with that, whether they are looking out to see what God's asking them to do and looking in to see who they are and how far short they fall of God's glory, maybe it's that, maybe they're very introspective, maybe they are trying to check their priorities, I don't know. There's so many different translations. I love the NIV. The NIV says that they have eyes under their wings. So the NIV translators, when they came to this verse, they just said, we don't know what to do with this. So let's just, they have wings, they have eyes, stick their eyes under their wings, problem solved, we're done, right? But again, more important than what they look like is what they're doing. What are they doing? They're worshiping God. It says day and night they don't cease to worship him. Day and night's not a reference to the extent of time, but the kind of time. And in Greek, it's called the genitive of time. Like when Paul would say, we work day and night to be a blessing to you. Just we're working as often as we can to be a blessing to you. That's what's happening here. Consistently, incessantly, they're just worshiping God. 
14 times in the book of Revelation, we see these living creatures. The four living creatures are described 14 different times. And they're always doing two things. They're always inaugurating God's judicial activity. They're helping enact and inaugurate God's judgment and his judicial activity in all of human history. But secondly, they're constantly giving themselves to worship, incessant worship of who God is. And what are they most preoccupied about when it comes to God? Well, you can see it there, right? End of verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Brothers and sisters, they've been singing this song since Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, if you go all the way back to Isaiah 6, that's 500 years before John's writing Revelation. So for 500 years, they have not stopped singing, holy, holy, holy. So if you ever think, man, we have sung that song at CBC a lot lately. (laughs) Just think of these four living creatures that over 500 years, they're singing the same song. Why are they preoccupied with this? Remember, we described the holiness of God. It's not only that he's sinless, because these angels are sinless too. When Satan took a third of the angels with him, these angels said, no, we worship God, we follow God, so they are sinless. But that's not what holiness means entirely. That's not the only definition. It's sinless perfection, but it's also completely set apart. This God is completely different and set apart from anything else that's in the world. Why? Because he is the only one who is eternal. He is the one who was, is, and is to come. Everything else has a starting point. Everything else has been created. But God was never created. They're infatuated with his holiness. They cannot get beyond his holiness. And when they sing, verse 9 begins. And this is the fourth thing that that grabs John's attention. The fourth aspect. So God shows John in Revelation chapter 4, glory and grace, authority and atonement, strength and service, and finally, number four, power and praise. Power and praise. We see the power of these four living creatures that just bursts into praise. And when they sing, verse 9, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, So again, this is all about his eternality. He lives forever and ever. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. What happens when the four living creatures sing? Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They just worship him. I love this. I love this. I've been able to have the privilege uh, over the years of leading worship through song and singing and be able to do it in youth group settings and church settings and conference settings and camp settings. And what I love about this is this describes what makes a good worship leader. If somebody's going to be a good worship leader leading a congregation or a people through song, this tells us what they should do and what they shouldn't do. What should they not do? I hear so often worship leaders, people who lead the worship through song, get up and say something like, 
How are y'all feeling today? Come on in. How are y'all feeling today? Y'all ready to clap your hands? Let's, let's sing louder. Let's, let's clap our hands. Let's, sometimes let's bow together. Let's, let's do something. And there's always this directive. Let me tell you what you should be doing. Did the four living creatures tell the 24 elders what they should do? No. The four living creatures just worshiped God with so much intensity that the 24 elders said, you got to join in. The four living creatures did not say, hey, you need to bow. The elders just did. The living creatures did not say, you need to sing. The elders just did. The living creatures did not say, you need to worship. The elders just did. So what makes a good worship leader, someone who worships through song, what, what makes the, the band that's up here singing different than pretty much every other church I've ever been a part of? At some point, these people up here, if you want to join in with them or not, it doesn't change what they're doing, right? At some point, they're blind to you out there as the congregation because they want to worship God no matter who's singing, no matter who's around, no matter what's going on. They just say, we love him, we think he's amazing, and we're going to praise him. Hey, if you want to join with us, go ahead and do whatever you want to do as you join with us. But we're just going to praise God. We're so enthralled by how awesome he is that we can't help ourselves. You all have been there in different settings in life. I remember I went to a, a baseball game. I love baseball. I went to a Dodger game. And, uh, you know, bottom of the ninth, just typical scenario for something amazing happening, right? Bottom of the ninth, two strikes, three balls, uh, a Dodger batters up at the plate. Uh, we're down by three runs and there's three base runners out there and if he can hit a home run otherwise known as a grand slam we would win the game with something called a walk-off home run or a walk-off grand slam remember one of the most recent dodger games i went to lo and behold that scenario happened and the batter just cracks a shot right over the fence grand slam wins the game what happens to all the people when he hits that home run. I'll just sit there and golf clap, right? Well done, well done. No, we just shot out of our seats, right? Now, there was nobody over the megaphone saying, now is the time to stand and shout, right? Nobody said that. We were all so enthralled with what was happening that we couldn't help ourselves. We all jump up, we're hugging each other, we win, we win. And that's a baseball game. It's a bunch of grown men throwing a ball around. How much more so should this setting, worshiping the holy, transcendent God, bring us to a place of awe-filled worship? And whatever that means to you. Obviously, when our brother Luke comes up here, we stand together in the presence of God. That's really the only directive he gives us. Let's stand together the Bible says we should do things with order, so we try to be orderly in how we do things. But there's no directive of, hey, we should lift our hands right now, or, hey, we should bow down, or maybe you just need to sit and be silent because you're standing in the presence of God and you can't take it anymore. Your knees are buckling under the awesome weight of his holiness. These four living creatures are just such a great example to us. They worshiped, 
And as they worship, the 24 elders worship too. And what is their song? First, we see at the end of verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne. That's where we sing in the song, holy, 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 casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. That's straight from Revelation 4. These redeemed are saying, we know that we overcame in the world. We overcame sinfulness. We overcame unrighteousness. We overcame the enemy. But we know that we couldn't have done that apart from you doing that work through us. So really the glory belongs to you. And they're around that glassy seat here. Have, have this back as praise for who you are. And then they sing. It's very interesting, their song. If you were to ask me, what do I think they should be singing about? It's the cross. But that's not what they're singing about. They're going to sing about that next week in chapter 5. But verse 11, they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. What are they singing about? They're singing about creation. The cross will come next, but they're first singing about creation. They can't get over how amazing it is that God made the universe. This Helps us to understand, by the way, that I don't think evolutionists will find the songs of heaven appealing to them, right? This song is all about God made everything, not it evolved for the glory of God. We see glory and grace. We see authority and atonement. We see strength and service. We see power and praise. And that's only the beginning of his vision because chapter 5 is going to take us even deeper into the reality of what God is going to accomplish through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We've seen what's in heaven. My question to you this morning is, are you going to be there? We've seen what's there. And my question is, are you going to be there? John doesn't give us this message to say, hey, look at what I saw. Aren't I amazing? Isn't it cool that I had this experience, that I had this vision? No, John's purpose in giving us this message is to tell us how to get there and be with him. How to conquer that impassable sea. The reality is you and I can't do it. I was talking to my son last night. We're talking about death. He told me that he's kind of afraid of dying. I said, tell me why. He said, because I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or hell. In those moments, by the way, you are just praising the Lord, right? You're just saying, God, thank you. What a privilege it is to be able to share Christ with my son. And I'm praying. My wife was sitting with me, and my wife goes, Chelsea, Tyler, get out of here. Just move. We're having a, an amazing holy ground moment. And I said, Ethan, why, why do you think that you would go to hell? He said, because I do bad things. And I said, I do bad things too. I said, Ethan, how do you think that you can get to heaven? What's the way to get to heaven? And I said, Ethan, do you do anything to get there? And he said, no. I can't do anything to get there. I said, who does the work for you? He said, Jesus Christ. So the reality is you and I have all done bad things. We've all offended our maker, our creator. 
But if you were to ask my son this morning, how can you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven? His answer would be, and it's the answer from all of Scripture, that you trust in Jesus doing the work for you and you giving up any effort whatsoever of doing the work on your own. I can't do it. God, you do it for me. You do it through me. This morning we have seen the glory of heaven, which leads us to the beauty of the gospel. And so as we prepare our hearts, we're going to sing a couple songs, but as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, I just want to ask you, do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're going here to be with John, to be in the presence of those four living creatures, to be in the presence of those 24 elders, and most importantly, and the only reason we want to be there, to be in the presence of Christ, who we love and cherish more than anything in this world. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word that has ushered us into the throne room of heaven this morning. We're so thankful for John's vision and how amazing and truly filled with awe it is. And even now before your throne, we would say, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, woe to me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. He saw his sin. Here's the prophet of Israel, probably the, the person with the holiest of lips, speaking on behalf of you. And he says, my lips are unclean. And yet you touched him with that coal. You sent that seraphim to, to touch him, that seraph to touch him with that coal to make a way for him to be forgiven. He couldn't cleanse himself. He couldn't do the work on his own. He needed you. And in the exact same way, you sent Jesus to take us through that impassable sea. And not only to be your citizens and subjects in heaven, but now to be your adopted sons and daughters in heaven. Now, as the author of Hebrews says, we have boldness to go before the throne of grace. As we sing songs that are informed from Revelation 4 right now, may we sing with passion, with biblically informed content, and with the truest sense of awesome hanging over this place, preparing our hearts to celebrate communion together. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.